1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. I'll read to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the living God. It is penned for you this morning. Let's hear it as it's read and especially as it is proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 12. There Paul writes, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider this portion of it together this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to this portion of your word, a portion that it's here, we deal with it, to be faithful to that which you have written for us, may you grant us your spirits. You've promised him to us. May you open our eyes and our ears as we hear these things. May they move us, indeed, to heed that which you have said, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. According to an article posted at the Pew Research Council, dated August 31st, 2020, it's reported that many Christians traditions disapprove of premarital relations or premarital sex. And even though Christians in the United States hold less permissive views than religiously unaffiliated Americans about dating and sex, most say it's acceptable in at least some circumstances for consenting adults to have relations outside of marriage. Half of Christians, it's reported, say casual sex, defined in the survey as sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship, is sometimes or always acceptable. Six in ten Catholics, that is to say Roman Catholics, 62% of them take this view, as do 56% of Protestants in the historically black tradition, 54% of mainline Protestants, and 36% of evangelical Protestants. 
among those who are religiously affiliated. Meanwhile, the vast majority, 84%, say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable, including roughly 9 in 10 atheists and agnostics who say this. The religiously unaffiliated, also known as nuns, are those, not nuns, N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, are those who describe themselves religiously as atheist, agnostic, or as nothing in particular. I took a survey, too. Wasn't as sophisticated as the Pew Research Council, but I took one nonetheless. And I guarantee you, with absolute certainty, that it is 100% right. Regardless of the answers given by these religious groups that we see in our culture today, I took a survey. Here it is. Here's the survey. The question, Dr. Apostle Paul, is there ever a time for a professing Christian redeemed by the blood of Christ to engage in sexual immorality? His reply, no, Bill, never. There are no circumstances that tolerate or allow for that behavior because it defiles the very work of redemption wrought in the Lord Jesus. He went on to say that there are some in the church that think it is permissible, but they think that to their own peril. How do you view this sin? I know if you're at all remotely acquainted with the Bible, you at least regurgitate the plain teaching of Scripture on the matters that are before us. But that's not my question. I'm not asking you to give me the right answer. I'm asking you to tell me what you think. When you hear the statistics as given by the Pew Research Council, do they bother you? Do they leave you wondering? Does it cause you concern and do you reflect upon the reality of our culture, our world around us because they have engaged in these things and the consequences of them are, well, plainly obvious? It is quite clear, of course, that many of you, if I were to guess, educated as it may be, many of you professing brothers and sisters have the right understanding of these things. But there are some in the church, as we have already heard, that appear to have no issue with this kind of behavior. Frankly, I don't think they know how to read. Their moral compass has been altered by the culture, by the world around them. It is not being governed by the authority of Scripture, certainly not being governed by the text that is before us. Let me ask a different question. Do you understand the egregious nature of sexual immorality and sexual sin? Paul goes out of his way in this text to highlight this plainly for us. About as plain as it can be made. The egregious nature of this sin. While all sins, of course, led to the crucifixion of our Lord Some sins, by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others, and this would be one of them. Let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that you and I, we face a common foe. 
especially in this area. We live in a sex-saturated society and culture probably greater than we've ever known in the history of the world. Although there's really nothing new under the sun. What does he do? He, he dresses it up. He makes it attractive. He, he, he promises great things as a result of it. All the while knowing As the writer to the Proverbs tells us, all at once we follow this sin as an ox goes to the slaughter till an arrow pierces the liver and costs you your life. The warnings are all over the Bible on this matter. To ignore them as unimportant to you or to behave in a manner that communicates that you see no danger in it, frankly, friends, is to be an utter fool. It is to be a fool. And the Bible calls you that. When it comes to this sin, this issue, as Paul presents it for us, an issue that not only ruins your soul, but your body as well, and more to the point of our passage, it defiles the Savior whom you say you love. Paul returns, as it were, in the context of things, to the matters of chapter 5. After this brief interruption of this matter regarding lawsuits, and commentators are perplexed as to why, but there was a reason, he comes back to this matter of sexual sin. We saw that in chapter 5 with a particular case, a particular issue, that was happening at the church of Corinth, but now Paul puts his finger on a matter that is happening there as well. A matter that is rampant in the church. And a matter that Paul is going to address, really two matters, that he will address in these verses, these nine verses of chapter 6. And so I want to show you this morning, with God's help, who you are in Christ. And why... The sin of sexual immorality defies that profession and sullies the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you who who you are in Christ. You may think, I know that already. You can just skip to the next point. No, I'm going to show you, because Paul does. I'm going to show you who you are in Christ and why the sin, as highlighted in this passage, defies that profession, that union that you have with him and sullies the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two points as we consider these nine verses together this morning. First, the starting point. We must begin where Paul ends. Put a different way, homiletically, I have elected to start where he ends for a reason. A starting point. We'll see this in verses 19 and 20 of the passage. And then we will take note of the necessary correction or corrections that Paul gives in light of that place he ends or where I'm going to begin. Let's first consider the starting point. Verses 19 and 20 
are a culmination, as it were, to what Paul has said to them beginning in verse 12. I've elected to start here because I want to frame it in this way because Paul does, throughout the entirety of these nine verses, he's constantly holding this umbrella over the Corinthian church. He is not calling them pagans. He is not calling them atheists. He is not calling them agnostics. He is not calling them unbelievers. He is regarding them as members of the church visible as Christians. So I'm going to start there. There at the end of verse 19, what does he say? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You know the Lord Jesus Christ today. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, that price of redemption. Through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed from the world of sin and misery that is, that is in our society especially, but really, again, nothing new under the sun, has really described the entirety of human history and the sexual immorality that occurs in just about every place, at every screen, in every magazine, and indeed in the church of Christ, You have been redeemed from those things. You've been bought with a price, the Apostle Paul says. Why? Why was this necessary? Christianity 101. Because you and I are sinful people. Left to ourselves, we would commit the the most atrocity, the worst of sins. Because we're sinners. Paul could not be more clear when he says it in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned. There are no exceptions. You and I were living in the bondage of Egypt under the cruelty of a taskmaster who had no sympathy, no compassion, no care at all. We were united to him. And as a result of this union, To the enemy of our souls, the only thing we had to look forward to was the wages that we must pay, the wages of death, an eternity of misery, the eternity, an eternity away from the comfortable presence of God who made us. We were redeemed because without it, you and I would have no hope in the world, none. Not a thing. This is what Paul tells the Corinthian church. He's told them more than once. He tells them again. He reminds them once again who they are and why they are who they are. Not because of them. Not because of their merit. Not because of their good looks. Not because of their behavior. But because of the Redeeming work of Christ who paid the price. A confession in the work of Christ. How is it that you and I are united to the Lord Jesus Christ? Through His work that we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. The justification that comes to us by faith alone the act of imputing Christ's righteousness to you. But it's not by a faith that is alone, is it? 
It's not by a faith that is absent or bankrupt or lacking in something. It is a faith that says, you will not live like this, Corinthians. This defies that faith. It defies that profession. It defies the union that you say you possess. In the words of Luther, our justification is by faith alone. Sola fide, the Latin, but it is not by a faith that is alone. For it produces the good works that God has ordained. For his church, there is a necessary result that must come from those who have been bought with a price, who are no longer their own. And indeed, that result is union with the Savior. You are not your own. Friends, you do not own your life. I know you think you do. Young people, I know you think you do. I know you think you're the captain of your own ship. I heard a commercial or I saw an interview today, uh, this past week during the U.S. Open tennis tournament in which this person was bragging about how they were the captain of their own ship and the commander of their own soul. And I thought, what a pity. For you are not, regardless of what you think. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, friends, you are not in charge of your life anymore. You've given it up for another. If you don't like that arrangement, maybe you don't. And if that's the case, friend, I would encourage you to examine your heart and ask yourself whether you know this Savior. You have given up your right to to your life in favor of the life of another. Period. Hard stop. Mic drop. That's it. The Apostle Paul says as much in Galatians chapter 2. Probably the first letter he penned in the New Testament corpus. What does he say about his understanding of his position in Christ? Well, he says, I have been crucified with him, with Christ. It is no longer I that live. but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who paid the price. You were bought with a price. Your life isn't yours anymore. Your desires, your wishes, your wants, your future, who you're going to marry, who you're not going to marry, the things that you do, the things that you don't do, all of it must be governed under the rubric of that union that you have with Christ. You are not your own. You've been called to follow him. Jesus says as much uh, to many in in Mark chapter 8 when he asks and he tells and he really separates the crowd when he says, if any man wishes to follow me, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and go off and do whatever you want. That's what he said. No. If any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must hear my words and be obedient to that which he has said. And as we do these things in this union that we have with Christ, we seek to glorify God not only with our soul, 
but with our bodies as well. With our mind and our ears, in our hearts, in our actions, whatever it is we're doing, we do to the glory of God. All of this eradicates the easy believism of our world. I was raised under that rubric, it seemed. The idea of just whipping out some, format, some formula in prayer, and I escaped the fires of hell to go off and do whatever makes me happy, because after all, all things are lawful for me. The gospel is not easy believism. The gospel is not merely Jesus died for sin, was buried, rose again, and ascended to his Father. It is that. It begins with that. But it continues. It's a life that says, as one is united to this Savior, who's done this purchase of a price, who's purchased my redemption through his own life, given up gladly for me, that I now will give up my life gladly for him. As the one who will live, as who has been bought, as one who has been bought with this great price. But sadly, in the church today, maybe in this church, The air of antinomianism, no law, that's what it means. The air that was pervasive in not only the 21st century, in the 20th century, in the 19th century, was pervasive in the 1st century, as I'm going to show you in just a minute, is often too much part and parcel of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was because of this error, really two of them, in fact, as I'm standing here thinking through it with you as we go, a misunderstanding of the union they have with the Lord Jesus Christ and their misunderstanding of the application of the law of Christ into the hearts and minds of those who have been united to Christ. It was because of this error that the Corinthian church had landed themselves fully in the target, fully in the crosshairs of the apostle, in an area in which Paul identifies as sexual sin. Not sexual sin out there, but sexual sin right here in this room amongst the people of the church. Of Christ. And so he must correct this because it will destroy the church. It will destroy the reputation of Christ. It will sully him. It will hurt them. Put a different way, this is an eternal matter. A necessary correction, really, two of them. You are in Christ. This is review. Christians, you are in Christ. That means that you are not to gratify the deeds of the flesh. Those deeds of the flesh is marked out by Paul in Galatians 5. Which one heads the entire list? Go read it. I'm going to tell you. Sexual immorality. 
As a Christian united to Christ, you are not to gratify the deeds of the flesh. You are not to feed them, feed it. You are not to place yourself in situations and circumstances in which your flesh might be triggered, even if you think it can't be, by matters that Paul addresses here in this passage. You're a Christian. You have been bought with a price, a work of the Spirit, then therefore that you might put to death the deeds of the flesh as a necessary work of the Holy Spirit as those who are, as Paul regards the Corinthians here, as united to Jesus Christ. He says as much. I've already said this, but he says it again in verse 15 of our passage. Look what he tells them. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You would think he would word that much differently if he was talking to pagans, to agnostics, to atheists. No, no, he's talking to the church. He's talking to people who profess faith in Christ. And he's treating them that way. Again, in verse 19, he says, your bodies, you, and that's in the singular, by the way, your bodies individually in the church, what, are are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If he were talking to unbelievers, that wouldn't even make sense. No, no, he regards them as Christians, as those that are united to Christ, who've been bought with the price, who are going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and one of the deeds of the flesh that is evident here in this passage is that which will ruin them. Actually, two of them will ruin them. And so he says to them, to the Corinthian church, he says to this church, your proof, the proof of your union with Christ is not in your words. I'm a Christian. Good. I am in a Christian family, children. Good. What is the proof? What is the proof of that union? Well, one of them is given in this passage, isn't it? But our confession is helpful in this matter because these good works, these things that we do, those things that have been ordained by God that we do, we as His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them... Believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God. Huh. Paul must have read the confession of faith. Whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. He is treating the church as believers, not as unbelievers. He said there's a problem. Two of them, as a matter of fact. Two errors that the Corinthian church is holding on to with both hands, with all their might. And Paul's going to take it out of their hands. He's going to strip them away, strip it away from them, that they might live as those who are believers in Christ, united to Him. They have fallen, as it were, into two very serious matters. In one, 
has led to the other. They're not mutually exclusive. Most sins aren't. The first error has led to the second one. The first one is the sin of antinomianism. The sin of no law. The sin of abusing Christian liberty. The sin of having a bad understanding of Christian liberty, bad application of Christian liberty. Word it any way you want. Paul highlights this error in verse 12 when he deals with a common Corinthian slogan. It's easy to miss if you look in your English Bibles. It probably has quotes around the very words in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, quote, unquote. That is your English Bible trying to capture the Greek and the thrust of the structure there. Paul is not saying that about himself. He is saying that this is what you people are saying. That all things are lawful for you. The Corinthian church is bought into the idea that since they have Christian liberty, they are free to do whatever makes them happy. Christians are like that. They think, great, I'm good. You know what? doesn't matter anymore because I walked that aisle and I prayed that prayer and, and I'm going to heaven. And so now it doesn't matter how I live. I'll do anything I want. I'll, I'll, I'll steal from Walmart and I'll put something. I didn't say Rob Banks. My wife would probably start laughing. I usually use that one right about there. They have a bad understanding of Christian liberty, thinking they're free to do whatever makes them happy, including sexual immorality. It was Calvin who said it is probable that the Corinthians, even up to that time, retained much of their former licentiousness and had still a savor of the morals of their city. Now, when vices stalk abroad with impunity, custom is regarded as law. That is to say, hey, it's the custom of our world. You do you and I'll do me. What my truth is is my truth. Your truth is your truth. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. Don't worry about it, but I'm going to heaven. And then afterwards, he continues, and then afterwards, vain pretexts are sought for by way of excuse, an instance of which we have in their resorting to the pretext of Christian liberty so as to make almost everything allowable for themselves to do. They revealed an excess of luxury. With this, there was, as usual, much pride mixed up. As it was an outward thing, they did not think that there was any sin involved in it. Nay, more, it appears from Paul's words, that they abused the liberty so much as to extend it even to fornication. But that never could happen here. It happened there. Remember who their first pastor was. It wasn't me. It wasn't Sproul. It was Paul. And it's happened to the church. He highlights this sin, this error, with two expressions. I've mentioned them already. The first expression that comes, it brings Paul's rebuttal. He says, hey, look, you say all things are lawful for me. Fine, whatever. Your understanding of Christian liberty is a disaster. I'm going to correct you. Here comes the correction. But not all things are helpful. Yes, it is true. Brothers and sisters, we have great liberty as Christians today. But not everything we do is helpful, is good. 
or even useful to the larger body of Christ, the things that you supposedly are allowed to do, uh, but they may not be good to do. In this context, Paul is not commending them at all. He says, you're using this antinomian, this this warped understanding of the law as an excuse, as a pretext to commit sin. This can't be helpful. This can't be good. And so he corrects their issue. In the immediate context, he is referring to the notion that due to Christian liberty, the matter of sexual sin is not restrictive to their standing before God. It is a gross misunderstanding of the gospel of Christ and the liberty we possess. One commentator pointing, pointing this very fact out, he says, instead of living as forgiven, holy, and righteous believers, they indulged in sexual and social sins. Instead of submitting to the rule of Jesus Christ, they condoned sin in the name of the freedom granted them in Christ. Instead of serving the Lord and their neighbor in genuine Christian love, they serve themselves. So much for your argument that all things are lawful for you. So much for your you do you and I'll do me. So much for your truth and my truth. No, no, there's only one truth. There's only one law. It's God's law and you're not following it. And as a result, the things that you're doing, they're not helpful. They're not helpful. They're not helpful to your witness before the world. They're not helpful to one another in the church. They're not helpful at all. And while it is certainly true that sexual sin here in this passage is indeed the focus, this can easily be applied to other matters within the realm of Christian liberty. First, the law of God is not set aside by the gospel. In its third use of the law, that objective standard by which we measure our growth in grace and the knowledge of Christ, it is not set aside by any means. And we must never use, in the second place, we must never use our liberty as occasions to gratify the deeds of the flesh, to stomp on our brothers and sisters and cause them to stumble to sin or sin. Let me give you an example. When I was in seminary, the janitor of the building a man who struggled with alcoholism just about his entire life, probably started it when he was in the military and it just stayed with him forever. Horrible situation. But he's beating it. He's winning. He's conquering it by the help of God's Spirit. It's, he's overcoming this, this enslavement. But the Bible nowhere pro- prohibits drinking. Just drunkenness. Well, he came to my house one day. We invited him over for dinner. There wasn't a drop of alcohol in the house. Anywhere in plain sight. Why? Because I, because I don't have the right. Of course I have the right. But it wouldn't be helpful. To who? To him. That's why. Now, I don't say that to highlight myself. I simply use it as an example. We can abuse Christian liberty, even in things that are right and good and even lawful, but that's not the case here, is it? They're abusing Christian liberty because they're using it as an excuse, a pretext to not only to sin, to violate the very word of God. The second expression Paul offers, again, he comes back to the you do you and I'll do me phrase, right? All things are lawful. Again, he says it, he repeats it for emphasis. But Paul rebuts this time, he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
What? That's right. The things that are good for me, I better not be enslaved to them. Christian liberty does not give me the license to be a slave to anything, even if it's good. Why? Because I'm supposed to be united to Christ. He is my master, and I am his servant. To be enslaved to chemical dependency, to be enslaved to relationships that are toxic and harmful, to be enslaved in sexual union with other people is to violate what Paul is teaching here. It's to become enslaved, to become under another master. Perhaps the greatest example of this is found in he who was, in fact, the wisest man. All things were lawful, Solomon would say. Yeah, including having a thousand concubines and however many wives. What had happened to him? Split the kingdom and destroyed him. He became enslaved to these people, to these women. Instead of enslaved to the God who saved him. He traded his union with Christ, as it were, for union with a prostitute, many of them. Paul says, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I am not free to do whatever I want, and if I am am able to operate under the freedom of conscience, those things must never master me or take authority over me. That is reserved for Christ and Him only. That applies to food, drink, relationships, watching TV, listening to certain music, all those things that we have liberty to do must never dominate or compete for the control that only Christ should possess. And the problem, of course, for the Corinthian church is they forgot this. And that's why they're living the way they are. Have you forgotten that? Who's your master? Is it social media? Your TV programs? Who is your master? All things are lawful. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but you should not be mastered by anything except Christ. And as a result, then, therefore, of their warped and misguided thinking regarding Christian liberty, the Christians, the Corinthians, were prone to all sorts of evils. I think the entirety of the letter shows us that. We've already seen a number of them, and now we see one that, you know, frankly, most pastors just have to jump over. I don't want to talk about this subject. It doesn't make me any friends. They're not pleasant. You have to tiptoe through it because of mixed company and all the things that come with it. But you know what? It's here. And so we're going to deal with it. This thinking has led the Corinthians to all kinds of poor behavior, poor and evils of every sort. And it is clear that the church of the first century was engaged in behavior that defiled themselves, defied their profession as Christians, and shamed the church in Christ. Now, as I begin to deal with these things, let me just issue a pastoral warning. This was chosen deliberately. Out of love, but out of concern. And I've heard this from some in this room more than once. And i got to tell you, every time I hear it, I pray the God of grace will give you more grace. Because you are not immune to any of these things. 
You haven't arrived at some place in time in history, in your spiritual journey, in which you are immune to any of these things. And if you think you are, I'm going to pray more for you, that God might not let you fall to teach you that you're really not immune. Look, King David, I know this example gets used almost so much that it loses its emphasis, but the fact remains King David was a man after God's own heart. He was about as mature a Christian as you'll ever find on the planet, and he fell egregiously in these areas. I'm sure I could hear him saying it in his palace. I would never do that. Let's not think that way. We must cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of the God of heaven. For there is no sin, as McShane puts it quite well, that I am not capable of committing. And you know what? There is no sin that you're not capable of committing either. This is one of them. The sin, of course, is the sin of sexual immorality. The immediate issue that Paul addresses for the bulk of this passage is the issue of sexual sin. Now, children, you may think this has nothing to do with you. I guarantee you it does. You may think you're too old for this. I guarantee you you're not. This applies to everybody in the church, and it's a matter that every one of us need to hear. Either as a warning, if you're young, going before you, that you might not engage in these things and you might understand why you, might not, you must not engage in these things. Maybe for some of you who are engaging in these things, because I will not presume upon the Spirit who knows all things in this room and knows your heart and knows your mind. And He knows your actions. And for the old, well, there's many lessons there, isn't there? The sins of the mind, the sins of the body, the examples you should set as an older statesman in the church as to these things, this is for everyone. Paul begins in a rather odd place. Maybe you read this passage, you thought to yourself, why is he even bothering with the whole food and stomach thing? What, what is the point? Well, there's many points, and depending on who you read, you're going to get different opinions. Some appeal to Acts 15 in which the sin of sexual immorality and the eating of meat or food was directly linked. Perhaps that's the reason. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't get into the sin of gluttony here. He doesn't even co- comment on it. He just simply uses it. What does he say? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, gee, thank you, Paul. I, I got that. I mean, it's where the food goes. Do you have a point to make? Yes, he does. He is pointing out that in this, there's a natural relationship, a natural use that occurs and that we all understand quite well. We don't give much thought to it, I doubt. We stick that Snickers bar in our mouth or that Reese's peanut butter cup. The second one is better than the first one. And you don't think about where it ends up. I'm telling you, it goes to your stomach eventually. That's where it's headed. Paul is not here trying to explain some medical issue. He is simply trying to show you, by comparison, the natural versus unnatural relationship between two things. It is, of course, a bodily requirement. Each of us have need for food and drink. Paul highlights that by simply expressing the connection between the stomach and food. The stomach needs food. 
Some of you know what that's like and maybe embarrassed by it sometimes when the stomach says, hey, look, I'm hungry, and then it makes noises. And your neighbor in the chairs hears you. The stomach needs food. As it turns out, it is a natural thing. Paul is not concerned with the sin of gluttony, as I've mentioned. He's only concerned with expressing the natural connection that exists between food and the stomach. But a direct connection to the attitudes of antinomianism within the rank of the Corinthian church, he's also dealing with this expression that maybe they didn't use, but we have heard and used. The Bible mentions it, eat and drink for tomorrow you may die. That these things are temporary. The comment itself is ridiculous. It's a foolish comment. Yet the antinomian attitudes of the Corinthian church was leading them to party. And you'll have to forgive me for the bad analogy, but I'm a product of my time. But it was leading the Corinthian church to party like it was 1999. Some of you anticipated that joke before I got to it. It's temporal. Note how Paul addresses the temporal nature of these things at the end of verse 13. God will destroy both one and the other. Perhaps a veiled reference to the eschaton and the resurrection in which he mentions again very briefly here in this passage and deals with it much later. But perhaps a veiled reference to the eschaton in which we will not have any need to eat. But we could if we want to. You try that today. I know some of you have tried. It doesn't work well. What is his point? His point is that eating is necessary. And it's also good and needful. They go together, don't they? Food and stomach, hand, glove, they go together. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating and drinking. However, the Corinthians should not confuse the need for food and drink, things good for the stomach, with the sins of sensuality and sexual immorality. One is necessary, and this is why he uses this. One is necessary, one is good, one comes with blessing and good, and and it's useful in the life of the body. The other one is not. One is useful and good, one is... Terrible and destructive and unnatural. Unnatural especially in the life of the Christian. Having dealt with the natural relationship that exists between the food and the stomach, he moves right into the unnatural relationship that should never, ever exist. As united as the food is to the stomach, the relationship that exists between a man and a woman that is outside the bonds of marriage should never, ever happen. As he uses food in the stomach as natural things, he uses it to lead to what is unnatural and destructive. The sin itself. The sin. The sin that flowed out of their antinomian thinking. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. All things are lawful, including sexual immorality. He prohibits it in verse 18. Remember that survey I took? There's your answer. It's 100% right. 
Why? Because God wrote it. Paul just had the pen in his hand. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. What is the sin of sexual immorality? I know we hear the word a lot. You've heard it probably, I don't know, 50 times this morning. What is it? Well, it's common sense. Everybody knows. I don't think so. I'm going to tell you what it is. Here's what it is. It's a violation of the seventh commandment. Simple, right? No, no, not so simple. Larger catechism, question 139. You should go home and read this this afternoon and meditate on the words. And ask yourself if you've been given over with either mental adultery or physical adultery. Because there's a possibility of doing both. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, I'm coming to those, are, of course, adultery. That's any relationship, physical, with anybody that's not your spouse. And that doesn't mean you have to be married to commit adultery. By the way, young people, adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, I'll leave that one alone. Prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, don't ask, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness. Hmm. Really? Seventh commandment? Idleness? Why do you think that would be there? Probably because the uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Boredom. You know, you usually do good things when we're bored. I don't know. Maybe that's why it's there. Gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. Paul says, flee all that. To the point, of course, of the passage, he is talking about that union that exists, that physical union that exists, that head one, that the seventh commandment just plainly says, what is the seventh commandment? Do not commit adultery. So he says, flee these things. What does it mean to flee something? Do you usually flee something that's good? I guess some people might, but typically we flee danger, yes? Typically we flee something that is harmful, destructive, can ruin us, can kill us. I don't remember the four steps of an active shooter in a situation, but one of them is flee. Why? Why? Why are you running away? Because danger, that's why. Paul says run away. This is dangerous. This will destroy you, body and soul. Run. Don't walk away 
from sexual immorality. We have an example of this in the Bible. In Genesis 39, and, and Joseph... Now I'm second-guessing myself. It's either 38 or 39. Anyway, Joseph, you know the story. Potiphar wanted him, not for good things. Joseph ran away. He fled that house. Masters were all in there. People were around. It wasn't just him. He ran. Not to mention the fact that he had to be there because he was basically an inmate in the home. But he fled the danger. How can I do this thing and sin against God, he says. It's almost like Joseph knew what Paul was going to write in 1 Corinthians 6. Or maybe Paul knew the story of Joseph and wrote what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. You must flee it. If you don't see the danger, my friends, if you do not see the danger, then you will not flee. You will stay right there. No problem. I'm tough enough. Joseph wasn't. He ran away. I guess he was a wimp. No, he exercised the greatest strength by getting away from the danger to begin with. The prohibition to flee these sins and to do other things. I said I was going to read it. Here it is. Well, what should we do? That we flee from something to something, yes? Well, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity and body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. The preservation of it in ourselves and others. Hmm. Watchfulness over the eyes. And all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our calling, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptation thereunto, that is what you flee to. Who's sufficient for this? But you've been bought with a price. Paul says it's prohibited in the life of the Christian. He doesn't really need to go on and explain it. But he does anyway. He gives reasons. Many of them in the text, of which I'm just going to simply touch on. I am not going to do it justice, I doubt. But I think enough for us to know why. Remember the proposition statement. I'm going to show you who you are in Christ. I've done that. And I'm going to show you why this sin is not only bad for you, but it brings damage to the body, to the, to the Savior you say you love. He gives reasons. There's four of them. First, it's assumed from the passage, isn't it? Because sexual sin is possible. Don't you think, sit there and say it's not for you. It was true for the Corinthian church. It's true for you. It is possible. It can happen here. It can happen in the mind. Mental adultery. Usually starts there, by the way. 
And it can happen in the act. Second, not only is it possible, and that's why he so, uh, it gr- so plainly commands that you flee it in all of its forms. The second reason is, is because, as the text tells us in verses 15 and 16, it defiles the very union your body has with Christ. Paul chooses his words very carefully here. He is not talking about the body of Christ as the church. He is talking about your body. Why is that important to emphasize? Why should I even underscore it? Because there are some in the Christian tradition that think the body doesn't really matter. Gnosticism. Dualism. That the only thing that really matters in the Christian life is my spiritual condition. You ever heard someone ask you that question? How's your spiritual life? Why don't you just ask them how their life is? Because you were made body and soul. He expressly mentions the body. And just as the body needs food, the body needs Christ. Christ redeemed you and me, both body and soul. All of his benefits, all of the benefits that are ours come from him. The work in the union, then therefore, that flows from that work that we have with Christ. Those benefits that are ours right until the grave. Even as our catechism teaches us when it talks about death in this union that we have with Christ. Even in death. My body is important to Christ. Think about it. What is there to be so enamored with? It's going to decay, it's going to rot, and turn to dust. And Jesus Christ is worried about it. I say worried not in the obviously sinful sense. What benefits do you receive as as relates to this being purchased with a price? We have all the benefits of Christ in this life, but you have them in death as well. The souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies still being still united to Christ. The body, united to Christ, rests in their graves, rests in their graves. Under his care, his watchful eye, his concern, until the resurrection. To give yourself over in a union to another that is not your marital partner, to your spouse, husbands with a wife, a woman, woman with a a husband, a man, is to defy that union. It's to trade it for that which is temporal, which will be destroyed, and which will destroy You, you and I are one flesh with Christ. We are his body. We are his hands and feet. But as Paul puts it quite plainly here, when we join with a harlot or other, engage in some form of sexual immorality, we defile that very union we have with Christ. Paul uses an example. He goes all the way back before the fall even and Genesis chapter 2, when he makes reference to this one flesh theology from verse 24. In that case, that union between husband and wife was good. It was beneficial. It was useful for the body and the soul. 
This one, though, is destructive in every way it can be to the body and to the soul. It defiles, it sullies, it brings shame against the church of Christ, against Christ himself. So Paul asked that rather pointed question in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The answer should be yes, we know that. They've been taught that. And they're not living that way. How many of you know things, but you don't practice them? They know this. But all things are lawful, so we're going to do whatever we want. Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members? And that's the word there, prostitute. That's the word he uses. Should I join bodily with somebody else that is not my spouse and replace or defile the very person of Jesus Christ? In marriage, it is good, it is beneficial, it is blessed of God. But outside the bonds of marriage, it defiles, it demeans, it destroys, it's destructive, it has repercussions beyond the act itself, coming to that in a minute. May it never be so, he says, amongst those who've been bought with a price and united to this Savior. Well, that's the second reason, the third, because it defiles the very temple of the Holy Spirit itself. Paul comes back to language he's used before in chapter 3. In that chapter, we noted that that language referenced the church as a whole. But here, he is speaking of individuals. You don't see it as much in the English, but the usage is in the singular. That means you and me and you and you and you, all of you individually, are temples of the Spirit of God. To engage in such behavior, to ignore the prohibition, to flee immorality, would be just like in the days of old where the priest would take a woman, not his wife, well, frankly, it wouldn't matter, but take a woman into the most holy place and commit acts of wickedness in the presence of God himself. You don't think this is serious? He chooses his words very carefully here when he uses the word temple. The Greek word is naos. It is the place in which the most holy place, the place of God's dwelling, resided in the tabernacle in the temple. Two words for temple. This one is the most holy place. How is it then, he would say, you Corinthians, how is it you can commit these acts of atrocities against the the Lord who bought you and do it in in the plain presence in that sanctuary where the Spirit of God dwells. Bring shame and reproach upon yourself and upon the church and upon the Savior. To defile the very temple of which the Spirit dwells is to blaspheme the God of heaven and is subject to His wrath. And then fourth, and finally, because this sin Unlike every other sin, as Paul puts it here, is an all-encompassing sin. 
The language is peculiar. It's even difficult. Again, things get lost in translation. It's not always easy to ascertain. And this is one of those Pauline times when I wish he had been a little more plain. He wasn't. That's okay. Verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What's he saying here? Is he really elevating the sin of sexual immorality to such a place? Yes, he is. The chief of sin, if you want to put it that way. What does he mean? Well, I will tell you that there are about, I don't know, I read six, seven different interpretations. Many of them overlap. They are borrowing off each other anyway. So I just decided to run back to my old favorite. Everybody say with one voice, Calvin. Because I think he says it as simply as anybody I read. Here's what he's saying. He does not altogether deny that there are other vices in like manner by which our body is dishonored in disgrace. In other words, he's not saying that there's other sins that you commit that are against the body. But that his meaning is simply this, that defilement does not attach itself to our body from other vices in the same way as it does from fornication. My hand, it is true, is defiled by theft or murder. My tongue by evil speaking or perjury and the whole body by drunkenness. But fornication, sexual sin, leaves a stain impressed upon the body such as is not impressed upon it from any other sin. If Calvin's right, and I think he is, this is what Paul means. This sin follows you. I knew a man many years ago. Man, you never think, never think could do this. Family man, godly in every way. Gave himself over mentally to immoral things. It stayed with him as he stayed up half the night looking at stuff on the computer screen. Men, if you have a problem with that, throw your computer out the window. That led to the next thing, an itch in the back of he could not scratch. And so what happened? He cheated on his wife, egregiously so, and then left her flat with three kids. But he never could do this. It has stayed with him his whole life. The effects on his children, the effects on his wife, not wife anymore, the relationships and grandpa and grandma and cousins and uncles and everything else, it's stuck with him like glue. It has never gone away. Though forgiven, it's still there. The nature of this sin just has a way of sticking around. It's a sin of the highest order. Each one of you this morning who know the Lord Jesus Christ were bought with a price.
That price tag, you have no way of knowing. Infinite price. The price that required God to crush his own son for the sake of your body and your soul. For both. As a result, you are now united to him in a way that is greater than that living example of husband and wife. It is. I love marriage. I love being married. I can't see myself being anything else. But my union with Christ is far greater than that. To commit acts of sexual immorality is to defile the marriage, isn't it? Doesn't it break trust, violate the union that exists? Of course it does. But worse, as professing Christians, it ruins your reputation, it sullies the name of the Savior, defiles the union you have with Him. Is it the unpardonable sin? No. We're not Rome. This isn't the unpardonable sin, but it is egregious. And I would be not doing my job as a faithful pastor and minister of the gospel if I did not tell you that. It is subtle, and it's egregious. If you're playing with it, stop. Flee. But it's not the unpardonable sin. What should you flee to if you have found yourself, as a result of this sermon, convicted by the Spirit of God, and only He's going to know that, and you? Remember these things. First, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I think I read that somewhere. Same author. Second, do not put yourself in situations in which the enemy of your soul will use it to destroy you. And he doesn't need much. He doesn't need much. Third, don't despair. I think for this whole sermon, I've been tempted to say just one thing, but I keep beating it back. I think probably because I should. Don't despair. Maybe you're now engaging in sexual sin, either of the mind or the body. You don't need to despair. You need to be remorseful. You need to repent. Because the Savior who bought you with a price is not letting you go. You cost him too much. He's going to hold on to you. He's going to discipline you. Maybe the sermon is that discipline. He is going to welcome you. He is going to receive you. If you look to him by faith, mournful over the sin, you look to Christ. Maybe some of you in the past have engaged in this behavior and have found the forgiveness that comes from Christ. And you know what that's like, the peace that can only come from Him. I can't give that to you. Your friends can't either. But He does and He will because you are important to Him. You were bought with a price. Fourth and finally, Instead of running to sexual immorality and sexual sin of the mind or the heart, 
pursue purity. You see, you've got to trade one for the other. Pursue, pursue purity in all areas of your life. Parents, you need to guard your children's eyes and ears from which will harm them. But you also need to watch over your own. It's not do as I say, not as I do. You need to be pursuing it too. Avoid all appearances of evil. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Corinthians were extended the hope of Christ. He extends it now to you. Even in this matter, there is always hope in the Savior who bought you with a tremendous price. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for its nature in which it teaches us so much. In this area, Father, we know how easy it is for us to fall. Many have. May you grant to us your spirit. May we not sully and defile the union we have with your Son. May we walk in purity all of our days, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.